So far on the show, we've talked about famous hackers, hackable devices, how some countries can make money off of cyber attacks, and how some just use it as a response measure. This week, I want to talk about something that you'd have to be living under a rock not to already be aware of. We're going to talk about Russia. More specifically, we're going to talk about how they're not just fighting this war with the Ukraine on a physical front, but how they've been coordinating cyber attacks to coincide with their operations. It's a hybrid war, and it may shock you to learn what some of those tactics actually are. I'm John Cordes, and today I want to give you a look at what the shell cyber warfare looks like. So let's dive in. I'm going to start this episode off with a couple small things. Firstly, I'm not going to be talking much about the physical conflict. This is purely a discussion on the cyber side of things. And while there may be physical ramifications in some of these cases, I'm not going to try to dive into the bloodshed that's currently going on. I don't want to subtract from that, but I'm going to stay in my own wheelhouse here and try to stay on track and talk security. Secondly, Russia is and always has been pretty with the curve on cyber attacks. So to do a thorough look at when they really started attacking is a bit difficult because in reality, it's more like they never really stop. They spread ransomware, launch denial of service attacks, and they launch propaganda all the time. Some of it is targeted at the Ukraine and it has been going on for a while, but it's also targeted at us as well, or other countries that the Russian government may have a conflict with. You'll see some of it this episode, so to make things easier, I'm going to limit the discussion to events just in 2022, so only this year. I'm going to start by taking you back to one of the early red flags of this year that something was happening on the cyber front. For a little background, I work in vulnerability analysis. There's a lot behind that, but let's just keep it simple and say that I help assess and remediate cyber risks. Well, as a part of that, I have a process that includes keeping up to date with the latest government cyber intelligence that's publicly available. You see, CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, maintains a public website where you can monitor alerts and current activity. You can go there right now and check it out if you want. There's tons of useful content for companies trying to keep secure, like lists of actively exploited vulnerabilities, and even recommendations on free tools for enterprises that can't afford a large-scale cyber effort. But I digress. On Tuesday, January 11th, I logged into work and I was going about my day, and one thing came up as something that I wanted to keep in mind from CISA. It was a joint alert from them, the FBI, and the NSA. The full joint alert is linked on my website in the transcript, but here are some of the bits and pieces that reflect where we were back then. It's titled, Understanding and Mitigating Russian State-Sponsored Cyber Threats to U.S. Critical Infrastructure. So off the bat, it gives you a bit of a heavy-handed notion of what to expect. It went on to read that, quote, This joint cybersecurity advisory, offered by CISA, the FBI, and the NSA is a part of our continuing cybersecurity mission to warn organizations of cyber threats and help the cybersecurity community reduce the risk presented by those threats. CISA, the FBI, and NSA encourage the cybersecurity community, especially critical infrastructure network defenders, to adopt a heightened state of awareness and conduct proactive threat hunting. They went on to list three critical steps for these organizations. 
Step 1. Be prepared. Confirm reporting processes and minimize personnel gaps in security coverage. Create, maintain, and exercise a cyber incident response plan, resilience plan, and continuity of operations plan so that critical functions and operations can be kept running if technology systems are disrupted or need to be taken offline. Step 2. Enhance your organization's cyber posture. Follow best practices for identity and access management, protective controls and architecture, and vulnerability and configuration management. And step three, increase organizational vigilance. Stay current on reporting on this threat. Subscribe to CISA's mailing list and feeds to receive notifications when CISA releases information about a security topic or a threat. What this is saying here is that they're aware of an increased threat from Russian sources. Be on guard, especially if your organization might be enticing to them. If you need to, take those steps and help implement them across your organization because we're expecting an increase in cyber threats from Russia. To be fair, this isn't too far off from unexpected normally. Those joint alerts come out pretty frequently and in waves. At this point, there was already tension between Russia and the Ukraine, and it seemed reasonable to expect a cyber response because that's just how it seemed to operate. But this was one of the first bigger pieces of awareness to come out about a large-scale issue forming. So people started to put their guard up, operated in a heightened awareness model, and on the cyber front, things would pretty much stay the status quo for the next month or so. So let's bring it forward to February 15th. It's been almost a month at this point, and between the Ukraine and Russia, tensions are only getting higher. There has not yet been a land invasion, but there are indications that things are heating up on the cyber front and the physical front. You see, on the 15th, Privet Bank, which is Ukraine's largest commercial bank, was hit with a denial of service attack. There are many reasons why someone might go for a denial of service attack, but with the added aspect of the Ukraine's defense ministry and armed forces websites also being disrupted, it seemed a clear indicator that this was a Russian intended disruption for services. But why would you want to do that? First, it sends a message. It's a warning flag that cyber warfare is a game that they are willing to play, and there are very real consequences to it, if it's played tough enough. At this point, I think there were still discussions being had, and this would back some of what was facing Ukraine with the threat of losing capital. Not their capital, capital is in money. After all, the denial of service attack resulted in users not being able to access funds or perform online banking transactions for hours. That meant there was no access to money for normal citizens and would be a big blow to morale for a typical Ukrainian trying to get funds from their private bank account. After a more thorough audit of their systems, there was evidence of hackers working for Russian federal security and their military spy agency throughout the Ukrainian networks. At this point, I've had people ask me before, John, how do you know it's them? How do you know it's Russia? So I want to take a minute to talk about that. At a high level, a lot of hacking can be broken down into tactics, which is how a hacker or a threat might behave at the highest level, a technique, which is a bit more detailed, and procedures, which is the most in-depth description of what's happening. A tactic might be something like reconnaissance of a target or gaining that initial access. A technique would then drive them deeper into that process. So a reconnaissance technique would be something like vulnerability scanning or phishing for information. And for initial access, 
A technique might be something like gaining access to valid accounts on the network through things like dark web information dumps. Then, in the most descriptive side, there's the procedures. And that's how the stuff is actually done. Do they use the credentials that they've got now to make fake transactions if it's a financial compromise? Or do they use those accounts to try to create persistent access so that they can come back later? For reconnaissance, a procedure might be, are they scanning from an external appliance? These are commonly referred to in the industry as TTPs, and they can be thought of as pieces of a fingerprint, or a signature. Since it takes a lot of work to hack major organizations like this, and things get reused quite a bit, it gives the attacker a bit of a playbook that they can run through. But it also allows us, as defenders, to recognize these patterns and act accordingly. The MITRE ATT&CK framework offers very comprehensive lists of how these TTPs can be mapped to certain groups and how they can be used in conjunction to get deeper and deeper into your network. I highly suggest you go and take a look at that website because it's pretty informative. So, using the information that was available at the time, it wasn't officially confirmed, but it seemed probable that the suspect which took down Privet Bank and the military websites was Russian-based because of the TTPs displayed and where the traffic was coming from. I want to bring it forward a few more days here to the 18th of February, a Friday. Here, it was reported more in depth that an analysis was done of a traffic which originated the DDoS attacks and found that a high volume of it was originating from Russia into Ukrainian networks. So what we just now talked about was the first phase of the attack, but what followed later that day was identified as spamming of SMS services. It was effectively a scam, but what happened was thousands of Ukrainians were getting messages on their phones saying that their bank doesn't work, and that the website is down. Now, SC Media reported on this and made two very solid points. This simple text accomplished two very important things. The first was that, in general, it was a very scary message. If I received this text and assumed it was valid, I would be worried about any transaction coming out and not being able to get access to my personal finances. So it stirred unrest in the people of Ukraine for their banking needs. But the second thing it did was that it added fuel to the fire. You'll remember that if you've listened to past episodes, a denial of service attack is basically like trying to send too many requests at one time. So many requests, in fact, that the servers can't handle it, and they just stop being able to take input and requests altogether, resulting in websites not showing up or loading. Well, I want you to imagine that you got this text, and that your bank was offline. How many of you might go check to see if it actually was offline? Any of you that did would be adding another request onto the pile for this attack. Some people might sit there refreshing, waiting to see if it comes back up so they can get access to their money, and each time, silently contributing to this attack, not on purpose, just out of fear for their own earnings. Jumping forward again a couple more days, we're going to bring it up to February 23rd. This is the day before the land invasions really started, so you can imagine how people are feeling right now. Things are about to break, and tensions are at an all-time high. Now, this all needs to come with the context that, at the highest levels, the invasion was getting ready to go. And while there are seemingly disputable accounts of people at the lower levels of chain of command knowing what's going on, 
Orders are coming on high to keep with the cyber attacks and things start to escalate a bit in the digital area. On that Wednesday, a week ago as of this airing, at least two different private organizations were targeted by Wiper Malware. This was brought to the attention of the public by the technical director of Symantec Threat Intelligence. It didn't hit widely, only impacting a couple hundred machines, but it was enough to catch attention. Wiper attacks in this case are meant to disrupt. They'll utilize a legitimate vulnerability to squeak in and corrupt or wipe data from the impacted host. Sometimes, if possible, it will also spread out to wherever it can. So anyone who's impacted by this would not be able to use whatever was impacted and the system would need to be completely rebuilt. Imagine if a system that was impacted was something for security or financial transactions, how quickly might things grind to a halt in that case? What's interesting about this is that upon analysis of the malware, it was found that the code for it was compiled and built in the end of 2021, before any official announcement of a faux peacekeeping mission that would turn into a war. This has been taken as a clear intent of premeditation on the cyber front, and those six weeks were likely used to plan how they would get this malware in and when. It didn't stop there, because the next big concern came from risks sent around Ukrainian air traffic control. A warning was issued to airlines asking that they stop flying over Ukraine altogether. What they were largely trying to avoid here was an unintended shootdown of a civilian airline, but the byline to this warning was that a cyber attack against air traffic control was not off the table. It seemed possible that with the ongoing attack, taking away the ability to control your own airspace was something that would be very valuable. To any plane in the air though, that meant that you could potentially lose any ability to coordinate your flight with airports. Imagine in that case that you've budgeted for fuel to one particular airport, but suddenly you can no longer communicate with them. You then have two problems, a set amount of fuel before you need to land, and no way to coordinate that against other aircraft in the area experiencing the same problem. It would be a major disaster if anything struck in this realm of cyber attack, so the high-level concern was warranted here. The last major event on the 23rd came in the form of another alert from CISA. This time, it was a joint statement from the United Kingdom's National Cybersecurity Center, the US National Security Agency, CISA, and the FBI. It was an alert from the public that threat actors called Sandworm, or Voodoo Bear, depending on who you talk to, was using a new malware called Cyclops Blink. The threat actor and exploit chain here was being attributed to the Russian General Staff Main Intelligence Center for Special Technologies. That certainly was a bit of a mouthful, but it's just to say that their government-sponsored hackers and cyber staff. The malware would root its way in on the outer edge of a network through the Internet of Things, infecting stuff like routers and storage devices, and allowing them to be used to accomplish further damage downstream. Once it got in through backdoor accounts that it was able to exploit, it tricked these systems into thinking there was a firmware update. It would then install that fake version of firmware, and that allowed them to maintain persistence until a new update or complete reset was done of the device. Victim devices here were then put into clusters by the attackers and could be used as wanted by the enemy. That malware would further assist Russia in a level of cyber dominance, granting it more power to complete DDoS attacks or mask their attacks under the guise of traffic from legitimate sources. It was a big development in the cyber realm. It's at this point, on February 24th, 
when things have been turbulent on the diplomatic front, disruptions have been caused on the network space, and things are shaky, that the ground invasion began. But with this physical action, we also started to see counteraction against Russia on the cyber front. And because of a widespread condemnation of the invasion, people show up in force. Whether it's advocating a change in business as a sanction to Russia, hacktivists trying to do their own part to help, or the Ukrainian government starting to turn out their own cyber as a response. And there is a lot to turn out, even within its own borders. Did you know that the Ukraine is one of the larger growing tech hubs in that part of the world? There are over 125 startups located there, and the IT sector, they grew almost as much as 36% in 2021. They annualized nearly $7 billion for the country. It really saddens me to think of what's going to become of that industry after all this is said and done. With such a booming tech industry, there also comes the darker side of the internet for sure though. With technical capabilities for sustaining hacking operations, there was a bit of a hacker underground, if you will, for that country. And that's not too surprising, given that it happens in most countries anyways. But on Thursday the 24th, the Ukrainian government saw that as an opportunity. After all, it was their home too, and this call to action was put out, not just to its own people, but to anyone that would listen. Quote, Ukrainian cyber community. It's time to get involved in the cyber defense of our country. This was posted by a co-founder of a Ukrainian cybersecurity company, allegedly at the behest of a top military official. It asked hackers and cybersecurity experts to submit an application via Google Docs and detail their specialties, such as malware development, offensive security, and it even went as far as asking for professional references. The Ukrainian government didn't officially comment, but it made sense, given that at the start of this year, there was no dedicated cyber branch of their military. It was a weakness that they knew they had, but they hadn't had time to start addressing yet. Shortly into the day, things started to shift on the cyber side. There was retaliation from the world, in the form of what appeared to be denial-of-service attacks against major Russian websites. Some of the sites that were hit included the site of the Russian president, the government infrastructure sites, and the lower houses of parliament. Similar to how Privatbank was hit early on, these sites would be down and inaccessible for several hours in one of the first major retaliatory cyber responses that we would see. And it makes sense, too, when you think about it. What have we said before about denial-of-service attacks? They're pretty easy to do if you've got the numbers. You plug in requests, you point it at a target, and in this case, because it's so easy, I'd wager you can expect the first line of cyber attacks to always be DDoS in a situation like this. There were probably a lot of low-level hacktivists that may not have known where to start with an operation, so they pick a big hitting site as a target. It's a message, one that says, hey, we have numbers too. It's not a heavy-hitting enough punch to stop them in their tracks, but it lets them know that you're there. Meanwhile, in the United States, President Biden addressed the world on the U.S.'s official cyber preparation here. Keep in mind, the United States has many different cyber arms. There are units in each branch of the military dedicated to cyber warfare and network defense. Playbooks have absolutely been written about how we could respond in a situation like this. So on last Thursday, when Biden said, quote, if Russia pursues cyber attacks against our companies or critical infrastructures, we are prepared to respond. For months, we've been working closely with the private sector to harden our cyber defenses and sharpen our ability to respond to Russian cyber attacks. He means it. And 
There has been a shift in the last few years. Defense officials haven't exactly been quiet about the fact that in the past, a lot of cyber operations were aimed in the more offensive capabilities and response side of it, instead of the defensive side. So that's why if you look into stuff like Air Force squadrons, starting in the late 2000s, you might see redesignations. For example, the 33rd Information Operations Squadron was redesignated into the 33rd Network Warfare Squadron as new careers and missions started to fall in line with those goals. So the US is, at this point, at least postured for a swift response if needed. I'd wager there are for sure operations going on right now that we don't know about, but they would be adamantly denied if probed on. That's kind of one of the sly things about cyber warfare. Attribution is tough and denial is easy. But the last interesting thing to come out of this day for me was that the Ukrainian government began to lobby that the Biden administration cut off Russia from software updates for United States-based software. That would be a huge hit. Freezing their software that's in use at the time right now means that any new exploits or unpatched exploits are effectively kept open until they can build their own updates. It's not entirely unfeasible for that to happen, but it's work that they wouldn't have been counting on and would give the whole world a bit of an edge because while there are alternatives to US software, it's still a huge powerhouse on the playing field. And at this point in the conflict, any advantage counts. So here we're gonna move into the next day, February 25th. That's Friday, if you're keeping track. Offline, many are fleeing the country to seek refuge while the war wages on. And many are also staying behind to fight. It's important that I lay that groundwork here about people leaving for refuge because now we're going to see Russia start to hit back again on the cyber front. Nations like Poland, bordering the Ukraine, were opening their borders to let refugees in. And in yet another attempt to slow people from leaving and decrease morale, attacks were levied against the Polish government email system and their systems that were used to clear financial payments. This meant offering support and processing visas and processing refugees would all become a little bit tougher. And while Poland didn't officially attribute the attack to Russia here, at the very least it seems to coincide too well with what was going on in the conflict to ignore the relation. The attacks were heavily monitored by Poland's leading power utilities because it was believed that the attacks went deeper than what was being found. However, the network remained operational with no disruption to power, which was a critical asset in being able to restore functionality if anything were to occur. Following those cyber attacks, Poland raised its cybersecurity alert level, which would effectively prompt anyone that works with critical infrastructure to begin working more diligently on monitoring their systems for intrusion and compromise. At the same time, Ukrainian military personnel were starting to get fished for information with emails that prompted users to open links to compromised websites. Once visited, malware would likely be levied against the mobile devices or computer that opened it and give a gateway for a further intrusion by any bad actor. So the Ukrainian Computer Emergency Response Team issues a warning to all personnel online saying that these were to be ignored and deleted. I have to imagine dispersing that information was tough because at the time network status may not have been quite up to par. Things would have been popping in and out as the conflict raged on and information must have been coming from every side. They're already dealing with a land war in front of them and now they have to deal with a cyber war for just a typical soldier. Another thing we've addressed in past episodes is that the Russian government does tend to have work done through third-party cyber criminal organizations. One such organization is the Conti Ransomware Gang, 
Their name is a pretty much apt description of their operation. They develop ransomware and disperse it, leaking data and gaining Bitcoin all the while. That gang would come out in full support of Russia, saying on their blog that, quote, the Conti team is officially announcing a full support of Russian government. Anybody will decide to organize a cyber attack or any war activities against Russia. We're going to use all possible resources to strike back at the critical infrastructure of the enemy. A pretty scary threat for sure, but one that does appear to have blown up in their face a bit. Because, and I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, two more days, later, an anonymous person decided to leak a whole lot of information on Conti. They leaked chat logs, which would reveal much about how the internal workings of a group behaved, and those logs would go back as far as a year. The logs are currently not only helping security industries prepare defenses from the Conti ransomware gang, but they're also offering a previously unseen glimpse into the chain of command between the gang and Russian intelligence agencies. It's been unconfirmed, but the leak is allegedly from a Ukrainian security researcher that's been working their way into the gang, infiltrating its operations masked as one of their own, while also making sure they were able to exfiltrate data. The person who did this is, in my opinion, a hero. It puts a big target on their back now, but it's a big win in the defense column. And that's how Friday closed out for a cyber world. On Saturday, more sanctions and actions started to get kicked in against Russia, including the removal of their ability to use SWIFT. You might have heard of SWIFT in recent conversations, but if you don't know, it stands for the Society of Worldwide Interbank Financial Telecommunication. Essentially, if you want to trade financially and internationally, or make payments between banks worldwide, it's done through SWIFT. So, to do this, cut them off, was essentially to exile the Russian economy from most of the world. This was met with an uproar from a Russian government, but there ultimately wasn't much they could do about it. And in fact, their stock market didn't even open today, February 28th. The value of a Russian ruble is currently down to record lows, with one American dollar being worth 105 rubles. In fact, it's fallen so far in value in US dollars that currently, the Roblox video game currency is worth more than the ruble. This is what these kind of sanctions are meant to do. Apply pressure without physical action, because now, for better or worse, all of Russia is feeling this. On the Ukrainian front, internet connectivity has been intermittent and poor at best at this point. There are problems in the southern and eastern parts of the country maintaining connectivity because of the fighting going on there. You have to imagine that the network lines are being destroyed one after another, and there are only so many failovers that can be held before it's just gone. In a bid to maintain access to the outside world, Elon Musk did something that I think is a little bit worthy of some praise, and he sent SpaceX Starlink satellite broadband terminals to the country to let them maintain their access. Starlink is a satellite internet program launched under the SpaceX arm that aims to one day have global capabilities. By sending those terminals out there, he's enabling fighters to keep dispersing information, keep fighting back on the cyber front, and keep the world aware about what's really going on. Because as much as a cyber war is about exploits, it's also about information. If Russia can cut off the information flow out of the Ukraine, then they'll control the narrative. Stopping that from happening is a critical part of this fight against propaganda. The other big thing happening at this time is that we're starting to see pretty large responses to the call to arms for cyber professionals. It's incredible to see the response from the security industry. For example, Grey Noise. 
a security company aimed at collecting and analyzing data on attack activities immediately upped every Ukrainian subscription to VIP free of charge to let them make the full use of the capabilities of a tool in defense. I'm linking a Google Doc at this point on the website because one Twitter user is also putting together a list of tools that are now entirely free to Ukrainians. Nearly 100 different products which previously had cost money are now available, including capabilities like better VPN access, offensive operational tools, DDoS mitigation tools, premium threat intelligence feeds, and more. They asked, and our community answered. I think it's because at the heart of what drives a lot of people in this field is the want to be able to contribute and to help defend. And when we see someone tearing down, it's in our nature to want to stop it. Meanwhile, in the United States, our government issues something that I previously hadn't seen before. A, quote, shields up notice. That CISA site I told you about early on? They published this whole new page aimed at helping get organizations into a better state of readiness, stating that, quote, while there are no specific or credible cyber threats to the U.S. homeland at this time, Russia's unprovoked attack on the Ukraine, which has involved cyber attacks on the Ukrainian government and critical infrastructure organizations, may impact organizations both within and beyond the region, particularly in the wake of sanctions imposed by the United States and our allies. Every organization, large and small, must be prepared to respond to disruptive cyber activity. CISA, at the time of writing this episode, is asking that all organizations adopt a heightened sense of awareness again. They're effectively saying to put the watchdogs out and maintain vigilance because, while there aren't any specific credible threats to us, it's not unlikely there won't be attacks. Especially given the financial sector cutoff that's been going on so far. Retaliatory measures almost always appear easier cyber-wise comparatively, so it's more likely that the first wave of incidents may be retaliatory to those specific sanctions. The Shields Up notice, like it said, is meant for all organizations, big and small. And since not every organization can afford a full program, it lists out major free tools that can be used to help keep readiness up. Lastly, on the 26th, Anonymous got involved. That's the same Anonymous hacking group that I talked about earlier this year in episode 11. This time, Anonymous seems to have come out in full force. It started with DDoS attacks, as it always does, targeting state-run media. This was their attempt at blocking Russian propaganda from being dispersed, which was seemingly pretty rampant at this point. Additionally, they claim to have hacked the Ministry of Defense database and Russian state TV channels, the latter of which you can actually find video of online on social media. State-run TV channels were hacked to play the Ukrainian anthem and patriotic songs and show actual footage of a conflict so as to inform Russians of the true cost and context of what was going on in the world. They went on to release this video, which I've tried to edit down a little bit because there was a bit of filler music that didn't really serve a purpose. Greetings Russian President Vladimir Putin. We have been patently waiting for you to respond to our most recent request, but we find ourselves growing impatient of your foot dragging. Unfortunately it seems you have made the option to ignore our presence and therefore we have decided to dedicate an operation specifically for you. A present of sorts. Do you perhaps remember the time the collective defaced Roskimordza's website in 2018? Mr. Putin? 
Do you remember when you lost to Afghanistan? A database belonging to the Ministry of Defense website was leaked by the anonymous collective. This database contained email addresses and passwords. This information was released on Twitter and it is now public information. Your recent attempt to threaten Finland and Sweden is shameful. You threaten to invade those countries if they join NATO the North Atlantic Treaty Organization. We took down the websites of the Federal Anti-Monopoly Service, Kremlin, Russia Today and many other Russian government-associated websites. Vladimir Putin, is it a coincidence that Anonymous thinks not? We plan to expose what has been hidden for years, with the powers of Anonymous bearing down on you and your corrupt cronies. It's only a matter of time until we uncover the dirt you've been trying to hide from the community you lied your way into leading. From the depths of your closet, no skeleton will be left unturned. We are now asking for you to restore the rights of the Ukrainian people, and resign as an elected official. You have failed to protect those in vulnerable living conditions, you have failed your civic and moral duties as a public official, and you have failed those you purport to govern in your continual lapse of honesty. This is a call out to all other anonymous, it's time to put Vladimir Putin's proverbial money where his mouth is. Do your research to dig, and leave no stone unturned. Vladimir Putin, we provided you with ample time to remedy our grievances and provided a bevy of options, but you have decided to create a much larger battle. We will never forgive the lies, and although you may have, we will never forget the lives that have been lost under your regime. It is too late to expect us. If this truly was anonymous, then I have to say this is probably one of their more impressive hacks to date. And yeah, Putin isn't going to surrender because of Anonymous. I don't think that was ever expected, even from a person that made this video. But it's more pressure tacked on, and while I'm sure this video is largely a stunt aimed at intimidation, there are bits that back it up, and even a shred of good intention and action here offers more than doing nothing. And we're coming up to the date that I'm recording this now. It's the morning of Monday, February 28th. At the end of this weekend, two major things of note happened. Both, again, revolving around the information side of a cyber war. On Sunday, to prevent inaccurate news from being spread, Google blocked the Russian state-owned news apps from being downloaded in Ukrainian territory. And just this morning, I read an article that Meta, previously Facebook, has found and addressed hundreds of fake accounts that were posting propaganda videos. The videos were fake scenarios of alleged Ukrainian soldiers laying down arms and surrendering aimed at lowering morale and inciting the idea that surrender was inevitable. The accounts have since been removed and the issue addressed, but I doubt it's over. We've seen the capabilities of Russian social media machines in the past. They had a heavy hand in spreading false information during the 2016 and 2020 elections, and now we're seeing it put to action for a different cause. I'm not exactly sure what the next strategy will be there, but they're absolutely working on it. So that's where we are as of now. I hope I was able to give you a good glimpse into the idea that the war being fought on the ground isn't just all there is, that there's a war going on in the cyberspace as well. There's more cyber attacks going on day by day, targets ranging from fuel depots to individuals with connections to the government. It's not going to stop, and while there's not necessarily a direct loss of life correlated to these attacks, there is impact. I do want to end this episode on an optimistic note. A close friend of mine recently put it well, telling me that, yeah, there is terrible stuff going on in the world. What's going on is absolutely horrible, but there's hope too. 
You just need to look. For us, that's taking the form of the security industry, which has shown up in full force and support. Black hat hackers, anonymous, security researchers, all trying to do whatever they can to help. On the ground, we have nations opening borders, waiving visa requirements, offering support like nothing we've seen in years. So in lieu of my normal ending stinger, I want to only point you toward my website, whattheshellpod.com. In the episode transcript there, and in the description of the podcast episode that I've put this out on, there are links to several donation sites that could use some help. Taken from the Washington Post coverage on where Americans that want to donate can do some good. Please, if you can, take a look. Donate. Spread information. Let people know that there is hope and that people are doing the best they can. I'm John Cordes, and I hope that you learned a little bit about what the shell cyber warfare really looks like this week. We'll be back in two weeks. Thank you.